Hello and welcome to Fireside Farmmaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Rashad talking about everything Farmmaker. Hello, I'm Michael Rashad and welcome to Fireside Farmmaker. And my name is John Mark Osborne. We have an interview today. We love doing these interviews because we get people in here that know stuff about things that we don't know about. Michael and I are mostly FileMaker purists. We like to stick with just FileMaker and what's built into FileMaker. So when we get a, a guest like Jesse Barnum, who's here today from 360 Works, by the way, one of the largest plug-in manufacturers in the FileMaker world, it's great to have them in here because they could talk about stuff they know a whole lot more than we do and give you guys more information. So Jesse is going to talk about, he can talk about anything he wants here. We welcome any kind of insights he gives us, but we're mostly here to talk about synchronization. And what we're going to do is set up this a little bit and ask a few questions to Jesse about his FileMaker experience, because he's been around for a long time. So let me ask you, Jesse, introduce yourself however you want, but I'm going to ask the first question also, which is how long you've been working with FileMaker and how long has 360 Works been around? Okay, uh, so thanks a lot for having me on. It was it was really nice to get an invitation. And uh, so a little bit about my background. I started with FileMaker in 1992. And the way I got started was actually from the Atlanta Mac Users Group. And a developer who has unfortunately recently passed away, Lee Hoon, was uh, kind of, out of the goodness of his heart, just kind of ran the special interest group and just taught us all basically for free how to use FileMaker. And uh, his, his lessons were great and uh, he was really patient. And so I learned a lot from him. And that was pretty much the, my start in the FileMaker community. And then I started, so at the time I was working in prepress. Uh, I had a full-time job doing Photoshop, Quark, Illustrator, back in those days, PageMaker and Freehand, a lot of drum scanning and things like that. And so I used FileMaker to build a job ticket system for our company. And it was, it was great and it worked really well. I left that company in 1996 to start my own business. And that was at the time called Prometheus Systems Consulting. Uh, and, uh, I started off doing Mac, so Mac IT support, you know, back in those days, the main thing people used Macs for was publishing. And so I was, I knew a lot about like corrupted fonts and postscript errors and fixing printer issues and drivers and things like that. So I went to a lot of the same clients that I had been working with at the prepress place to, to help them when their computers were, were, you know, acting up. And uh, one of the first big clients that I got was an advertising agency, Bernard Hodes Group. And uh, they, they, asked, uh, they asked if I could also, in addition to fixing their computers, help them come up with like this job ticketing system. So I was like, oh yeah, I've been using this FileMaker 2.1 and now it's up to 3.0. So now we've got relationships and lookups and things like that. So that was kind of the beginning of my professional FileMaker career was 96. I think we changed our name to 360 Works, like 99 or 2000. Try spelling Prometheus-SystemsConsulting.com like a dozen times a day, <laughs> and, and it gets pretty old. So we, we came up with something much shorter and easier to spell, but that was, that was kind of the history of it. I, I find it interesting uh, that you talk about your mentor. Uh, mine was Michael Whitney. Uh, nobody knows who he is. He's a guy who sat 
across from me in tech support. We had cube doors that were facing each other. And so when I had a question, I'd swivel around in my chair because, you know, when I started, I didn't know hardly anything about FileMaker. I'd hit the mute button even while I was talking to somebody on the phone and, and you know, ask him a question. He might write down on paper, come over. And so having a mentor is such a great thing. And we've talked about this before in these in these uh, podcasts. And it, it's great that you brought it up, that you revealed that, you know, this uh, Lee Hung was your mentor. And it's great to have had one. Yeah, I was really grateful to him. You know, I think I realized, especially now, but even at the time, I was young. I was... Let's see, I was like 23 when I was doing this stuff. And, and I really realized, wow, why is this guy spending so much of his time to teach a bunch of people who are not paying him how to do this database system? And he was also, he was so incredibly organized. I remember one time he had a demo file and his demo had a bunch of scripts in it. And he was showing us like script by script how everything worked. And I, I noticed at one point, I'm like, Lee, your, your scripts are in alphabetical order. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, that's just how I like it. So, you know, I, I learned a lot of uh, kind of discipline and, and, and rigor from kind of how, how good he was. And so, uh, yeah, he's, I, he passed away. I think it was last year. And so that, that was sad, but I, I owe him a lot. You know, it's really interesting that one of the things that I've always loved about the FileMaker community is the willingness of people to take time to share their knowledge and expertise with other people. And that sense of community is fantastic. And it's very short supply these days, unfortunately. Yeah, you know, I think that, I think the FileMaker community is really exceptional. And I do some Java development and JavaScript and the community level is not quite the same. And, and the reason I attribute to that is because nobody really, maybe a few people, there are very few people, let's put it that way, who like decide to start off with their career as FileMaker. And, you know, nobody goes to college saying, I'm going to learn how to program FileMaker so I can go get a job. Really what happens is people have other jobs, like real jobs, <laughs> and then FileMaker, like I did doing prepress, and then FileMaker falls in my lap and I'm like, wait, this is way cooler than my real job. I want to do this. And so when you have a whole community of people who latched onto something because they discovered that they loved it more than whatever the thing was that they were doing. That's great. You, you know, it's, it's kind of a self-selecting group of people who just do it because they love it. And when you do something because you love it, you're going to be happy to show other people how to do it as well. Yeah, I think that's very true. I remember back in 87, when I started with FileMaker, literally the moment I started playing with it, I fell in love with it and I've never fallen out of love with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 um, it's incredibly empowering. Yeah. Um, so you're based in Atlanta, if I'm, if I, my memory serves. We are. Correct. Yeah. And have mm -hmm. you lived in Atlanta all your life? Now I grew up in Sarasota, Florida. I came here in 1990 to go to school at Georgia Tech and didn't wind up graduating from Georgia Tech because I basically, once I discovered the computer lab, I stopped going to class and I was just in the computer lab all the time. And it, it's kind of funny because in the computer lab, we had uh, Spark stations, SunSpark stations. And so I learned Unix kind of just word by word. And so once we switched to OS X, all of the Mac people were like, oh, this is terrible. Well, I don't know how to do anything. And I'm like, this is just like the SunSpark stations I used to use all the time in the computer lab at Georgia Tech. So I, I feel like 
I got a lucky break there that I was a little maybe 10 years ahead of where things were actually going. But, but it was kind of funny because my wife moved up, or at the, my now wife, at the time I didn't know her, she moved up for the Olympics. She got a job at the same advertising agency, Bernard Huda's group that I mentioned before. So we met at that advertising agency. We started dating, got married, then her family moved up, then my dad moved up. Then her brother moved up. Then my aunt moved up. So like now we're getting our Thanksgiving stuff together for next week. We're probably going to have like 19 people here. None of them are originally from Atlanta, but we've kind of established this sort of critical mass black hole where we're attracting everybody, all of our friends and family to Atlanta. Well, that's good. Now, your brother, Sam, is part of the company. And yes, he is. if I remember rightly, he lives in San Francisco. Yep. He's right in downtown on Bush Street. Oh, that's a nice area to live in. Yeah, yeah. And what does Sam do within the company? Does he do the same thing as you you do? He has one very large client that keeps, uh, it's our largest client that keeps him extremely busy. And it's actually, it's about 10% FileMaker, 90% other stuff, a lot of Java programming, a lot of AWS, but some FileMaker too. And so he's he keeps very busy with them, but he also helps build a lot of our internal systems. He builds our online store. He builds the system that we use for our, for our time tracking system. And he and I do a lot of product development as well. So kind of that's, that's his break from the client that he works on all the time is to, to for me, me, he and I to get together and do, do product development, which is always fun. Do you find it difficult working at such remote distances or is, is it really easy for the two of you? For the two of us, it works out pretty well. For the, I, I kind of insist that all of our employees, except for Sam, are local in our office in Atlanta. We have 15 people there. And, and I find that it's just a, a much better environment when everybody's physically together under the same roof and they all learn from each other. And if I could have Sam there, I would. But you know, he's got, he's got a family in San Francisco and he's very happy there. So he's not planning on leaving anytime soon. But what we do is uh, we'll do kind of these fun projects where he'll come to Atlanta or I'll go to San Francisco and we'll go somewhere for a week and we'll just hole up somewhere and write code and ride motorcycles and hike and have a fun time. So that, that, that's always something we look forward to. So like in February, that's when we really started getting rolling with Mirsync 6. He came to Atlanta. We got on the motorcycles, went down to South Georgia, stayed at a cabin and just got tons of work done in about five days between the hiking, the motorcycling, and the coding. It was, it was great. Yeah, it sounds like a good way to do things. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, working remote is, I, I'm a little skeptical of, of a completely virtual arrangement. I, I do find a lot of value in face-to-face, you know, learning and, and, uh, and interaction. Well, it's kind of like, you know, when you're having a master, you're doing a mastermind session, when you've got a whole bunch of people all working and thinking about the same thing, you get an incredible synchronicity between minds and ideas just come out of nowhere. Yeah, and our business model is very much oriented towards having very entry-level people that we train, and that can't work remotely. So on either end, you know, the, the junior developers need to be in the physical office with the senior developers because that's the only way that they can really, they can really learn well. And you could, you could make the case, there's so many great remote tools like Slack and you know, all sorts of video conferencing tools, 
So you can make the case that it's possible to connect it easily, but when you're in the same room with each other, you know, you can see somebody's body language and you can know that they're stuck. I can just tell from the way they're staring at the screen that they're stuck. <laughs> and then you can walk over to them and say, Hey, what are you working on? Maybe I can help. And that wouldn't happen if it was remote. So it's interesting uh, that you are based in Atlanta because I'm born, raised in California, but I spent, lived in, in Georgia for two years over in Marietta. Oh, Oh, awesome. Yeah. We're in Roswell. So we're neighbors. We're, yeah, I, I barely know where Marietta is anymore because I was in fourth grade. So, but, uh, but you know, we're, we've got some kind of connection there, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I like Georgia a lot. You know, it, the seasons are, are very distinct and the, the economy is good and there's a lot of exciting things happening in Atlanta. I, I do, I do get jealous of your weather. Every time we have uh, DevCon in San Diego, I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be awesome. <laughs> Isn't it funny, though, that DevCon is so often at places that you wouldn't choose to visit in that time of year? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I'm excited about Nashville. I got to say. I am too. I'm, it's the first one I'm going to be going to for about 10 years. That was a real uh, out of nowhere kind of thing. I was not prepared for that. It's a four hour drive for us. So, we're, we're going to pile into like a van or an RV or whatever and take a whole big group of people up. So I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to a, a new location. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting. I think Stephen Blackwell might have had something to do with that. Are you serious? No, I'm just kidding, but he is from Tennessee. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I, I would not be surprised. I, you know, I mean, if he actually did, I would I'd be like, oh, that sounds like Stephen. <laughs> So let's, uh, we, we love these stories and feel free to, to share anything you want during this interview, but we're going to get, try to get on track here. And I want to set up this whole synchronization thing by first having you talk about the various different ways that you can actually share FileMaker databases. Um, we have the network you know, or the internet uh, where it's live. You have uh, a copy uh, of your database that you only make changes to one copy of it. So you can, you know, certainly share that with other people, import stuff. Uh, you can import with matching records. You can, I'm going over it really quick. I'm sure you'll spend a lot more time on it. Um, you know, but uh, let's go over these different methods and have a little discussion about it so everybody knows, because there's not one way to share FileMaker. And that's what this synchronization uh you know, discussions all about there's everybody knows how to share it through the, through the network, or at least most people do, but let's talk about all these different ways. Yeah. Sharing through the network, just connecting as a guest to FileMaker server. Clearly that's the best way to do it. If you are on the same local network as, as FileMaker server. And, uh, you know, there's really no downsides to just connecting directly to FileMaker server. If you're on the same LAN, if you're not on the same LAN and let's say you've got a slower wide area network connection to FileMaker server, then it's, it's muddier. You know, it might still be the best option to connect to FileMaker server if the database is very large and has, you know, millions of records in a bunch of different tables and everybody who connects to that server needs to be able to access all of those records. Then, you know, there's still, that's probably still the best way to do it. The idea of like sharing a single copy of the database that you distribute to people you know, that essentially, that's starting to get into what MirrorSync does. MirrorSync is designed so that you take a copy of what's on the server, you give it to your users. MirrorSync is just adding the ability to automatically download and upload the changes. 
So, you know, if nothing ever changed, then, you know, you wouldn't need MirrorSync, but that, that wouldn't be a very useful database either. And there, there are, you know, if, if you, the web is obviously a very powerful option and, uh, and, and, uh, whether you're building a, um, HTML application or you're building an iOS application, uh, and we're starting to do a lot more with client side JavaScript and AWS. And that's exciting, especially when it's, when there's some way to tie it all into FileMaker, which is one of the things we love to do. But we find that the synchronization option, you know, the ability to just click a button and have everything on your offline file come into sync with what's on the server. You're pushing everything, you're pulling everything. That is really a powerful concept. And most of our, I would say the majority of our customers are using it on iPhones and iPads. It'll work on a laptop as well, but we use it for that internally. Like my wife does all of our bookkeeping and our invoicing. And she has copies of the databases on her laptop and we can be traveling together on a plane or wherever, and she can do all the invoicing and all the bookkeeping and she syncs it all up from her laptop. So that works, but I don't know that many customers that are using it that way. Obviously the majority of people are using FileMaker Go on either an iPad or an iPhone. And a lot of them are doing field data collection. We have a lot of people doing, you know, construction work or uh, monitoring gas pipes or inspecting chimneys or floors or doing medical health checks, you know, just lots of different things where, oh, one of my favorite ones is people, people who uh, do cell tower construction, because if they have cell signal where they are, then they're not in the right place. Uh, so by definition, they, they need to be able to work offline. I think one of the coolest things that I know of for people that are using MirrorSync, and I don't know if they're still using it this way or not, I hope they are, is uh, we had, uh, there was a client of ours that was doing architectural digs in Africa. And they were searching for like a lost, lost Roman legion. And so they had, you know, they're right in the middle of the desert. And so they would do their digs and they would take their photographs on their iPhones. And then they would sync it all up to an, uh, a Mac mini out in the field that they had with them using MirrorSync. So there's some pretty neat things that people do with it. This reminds me of, uh, of a client I had where they're doing insurance inspections. And normally I would try to design a solution. Yeah. That's live linked. You know, you're just connecting up, like you said, to FileMaker server because it's a no brainer. It's really easy to do. You just simply put your file in FileMaker server. You go to the open remote dialogue or whatever it's called these days, the host dialogue. I can never remember. I'll just start calling things script maker. Um, and, and you just connect up to it. You put your password and you connect it up and everything you put in there goes directly on the server and it's immediately available to everybody. But I had this insurance inspector. And he actually was contracted for insurance and they had to often be down inside of basements and stuff. And they didn't have internet connection. They had to take all these pictures and things. And not only did they not have an internet connection, but they wanted that picture to be put into FileMaker much faster. They won't have to wait for it to go over possibly a slow, if they had one, a slow internet connection where the, the, you know, they want those pictures to go boom. They want to do their job and then come back and synchronize. And I, I think that's uh, one of the big benefits of synchronization is that people have a slow internet connection or they have no internet connection. Right. And I find that there's kind of three classifications of things that can be problematic with a live connection. Number one is that 
it can be slow, like you said. And number two is it can be down, you know, where you're one of our clients, for instance, is um, they do a lot of emergency medical services and paramedics and firefighters. So they'll be at on site and there'll be somebody who's, you know, having a heart attack or whatever. They load them in the back of the ambulance. They may have internet and they may have a working cell signal on their phone at the time they're doing it. But then they get in the back of the ambulance and they start to drive and they're passing through all these cell towers and their data may be coming up and going down. So they, they built a system that uses mirror sync so that they don't have to worry about, you know, losing the connection while they're driving and they can enter all the patient vitals and stuff like that. So that by the time they get to the hospital, they're just syncing it and, uh, and, and it's there, you know, as they, as they arrive. So that's, that's the, you know, the second problem is kind of intermittent inter- internet or internet that's down. And then the third issue, which is not quite as obvious, is the, the problem of just exiting out of FileMaker Go. Even if you have fast internet and it works all the time and you never lose internet connection, it's obnoxious when you switch out of FileMaker Go and then you try to switch back to it and you've lost the connection to the server and now you need to re-log in and rerun the startup scripts and get back to wherever you were. So the ability to have the solution, you know, kind of just you exit out of FileMaker Go and everything stays right where you left it. And then you can come back in later and it's still right where you left it, you know, just as because you are literally working with your own copy of the file. So there is no there is no interruption of being disconnected from the server. And so I, I find all of those things kind of combine to create scenarios where it's often really helpful to sync. And it's exacerbated if you're in front of a customer. You know, if you're if you're an inspector and you're walking around and you want to show a customer things that you found, and that's the moment that you're like it starts spinning and scrolling because it's waiting for something to load, you don't want that to happen in front of a customer. So I find that having that offline copy gives you that assurance that you're not going to suddenly find yourself waiting for the system to do something. Yeah, you made three really valid points that I don't think many people ever consider or take into consideration. And certainly, you know, I'm aware of all of those, but now now hearing you mention them, bring them up, it sort of has brought them to my forefront of my mind instead of being at the back. Yeah, it, I mean, it, and some things are more critical than others. And the more critical it is and the more time resp- time sensitive it is, the, har- the stronger the argument becomes for working on your own copy of the file. There's just a lot less that can go wrong. I think it's important to note uh, that the the realistic nature of what you're saying, because recently, uh, I forget what version, but a couple of versions back, FileMaker brought out perform script on server. And part of the reason for this was because of what you said, people were in FileMaker Go and they didn't want to wait for a script to, to get done running. So they'd say perform it on the server and then they could get out of, you know, out of FileMaker Go and go to the other app. Uh, and it doesn't matter if it loses connection at that point because the script is performing on the server. So I think all these things come back to, to really, uh, point out that there's many ways to do things. And one of your considerations whenever designing a solution is, should I synchronize? Would it be beneficial? Yes. And there are times that it is, and there are times that it is clearly not. So it's not the right solution for everything. And I think there's also a good thing to point out here is that you can do synchronization without third-party products. And I was hoping, I know that they, obviously you sell a third-party product and it's very popular and it's it's really good. And you spent, uh, you know, I think you told us the last six months of your life working on MirrorSync uh, 6. But talk a little bit about uh, the complexity of 
creating your own synchronization and possibly when it might make sense rather than than buying a third-party product and probably and maybe in simpler scenarios you might want to do your own synchronization with just filemaker features um you know originally with mirrorsync mirrorsync was born out of an, an attempt that i made many years ago um to to build a filemaker synchronization system for a customer and i never got it to work uh and i i know that that was a long time ago and there weren't white pages or, or white, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? White papers. White papers, thank you. There weren't white papers out there at th that time, kind of like describing techniques and stuff. And so I just, I hit a wall and eventually I was like, I can't, I can't do this in FileMaker. I think it probably is more possible now, but there's a lot of things, there's a lot of things that make it difficult. It would, I think that the case where it might make sense is if it's a first of all obviously if you're you have to be using uuids mirrorsync works with serial numbers and a lot of filemaker systems still use serial numbers if you're using serial numbers there's no way you're going to be able to make that sync in filemaker natively um so start assumption number one you have to assume you're using uuids assumption number two is that um you are probably going to be syncing one way it's I think it's not impossible to build a native FileMaker system that does two-way syncs. People have done it, but it's orders of magnitude more complex than a one-way sync. So if you're trying to roll your own and it's a, a bi-directional sync, there's, it's, it, like I said, it's not impossible, but it's going to be extremely challenging. Yeah, I think that's a very valid point because last, about a year or so ago, I built a sync routine using pure FileMaker deployed on an iPad, which when it wanted to pass the, to the a set of data to the server, it opened a, an interim file which created a connection and then just pushed the packet through that relationship and then closed it down. And then the server file processed it. And that worked really well, but it was one directional and that was all we needed. But I think the bi-directional situation is much more common yeah, when you get into record conflicts uh, and, and merging field changes from both sides, um, it gets extremely difficult to do that in FileMaker. And one of the things that becomes especially hard, and again, none of this is impossible, it's just very hard, um, is you can kind of get into a feedback loop. So if device A writes a change to device B, and then device A goes to get all the changes from device B, it's seeing its own changes that it just made. And so... The, when I've seen people try to solve that on their own, the solutions they come up with are often just bad. Like, for instance, they assume that everybody's clock is the same. And so if I wrote it at this time, then only changes after this time need to be synced. But that falls apart if they're in different time zones or if their clocks are 30 seconds apart and they're you know being changed rapidly. So that, that's, a, that's a hard problem to solve. Of course, it's difficult to resolve conflicts uh, in those situations. I find that the thing that is the hardest to do and perhaps impossible to do efficiently is deletions. So, you know, I think most of the time when people try to build their own bi-directional sync in FileMaker, they don't allow records to be deleted. They require it so that you flag them as, you know, hide this record. Uh, and, and that's doable. But if you want to just be able to delete any record anywhere in the system and then detect that that record was deleted and sync it, I've seen systems that do that, but they're incredibly inefficient when the database gets large. So, you know, if, once you get to 50,000 records or so, doing it natively in FileMaker, that, that might, I, I've, 
I, I was looking into this with, um, I don't really like to mention good or bad other people's products, but it's not really on the market anymore and it's discontinued. So I'll, I'll bring it up, which is FM Easy Sync. I was testing FM Easy Sync and uh, when I got to 50,000 records, deleting a single record and then running the sync took eight hours to finish because it was it had to download all of the primary keys from both databases and compare them to see which one was missing. Uh, and so mirror sync does the same thing in, in under a second. So deletion tracking is extremely difficult to do natively in FileMaker. Another thing that to keep in mind is that it, it's only good in a solution that is very mature and is not changing because those scripted imports, you know, typically if you're doing a matching by name kind of import, when you add fields, you also need to modify your imports. And if you add tables, then you need to modify your uh, tables, your, your scripting. So it might be adequate in a very finished, mature solution that is not still undergoing development to do that. But it's going to be more trouble than it's worth to do it in a system that is constantly still evolving for, for based on customer requests and things like that. Validation failures and error reporting, often very difficult to do natively in FileMaker. Doing things like if somebody's editing a record and you try to push your change and it, you can't modify that record because it's being edited, you have to remember that that particular record needs to be retried on the following sync. And you just run into all of these rabbit holes and edge cases that, again, not impossible, but very, very, very challenging to, to address them all well. Yeah, I'd like to uh, point out that it seems like there's just too many barricades to doing it yourself unless you have a very simple one-directional synchronization. So if you're trying to do with just FileMaker scripting and calculations, you really have to, it's a, it's a possibility, but in a, in a very simple situation. And, and it's important, I'm, I'm glad you're talking about all these roadblocks to it because I think a lot of people try to do it. I tried to do it one time um, and yeah, it too. just doesn't always work because it's just, it, it, the tools really aren't there in FileMaker. Yeah, they, they, yeah, and you run in, you're right, you're right, they're, they're, they're not. And uh, you run into performance problems when you try to get FileMaker to do it the way that I would do it, like, say, with Java. Yeah, trying to force the, the square peg into a round hole. It's just, it just, it's not there for FileMaker, and that's kind of the point I was trying to make by, you can do it with FileMaker, but after this long discussion, you probably want to save it for the most simplest synchronization scenarios. But you also brought up a couple other things. Um, can we talk a little bit about the difference between UUID, UUID number, and serial numbers as far as synchronization goes so people understand why you can't use serial numbers or you could but it's a pain in the you know in the rear and and what the difference between uuid and uid numbers yeah so so serial numbers you know i mean we all know what serial numbers are one two three four five and if you're using those as primary keys it, it becomes problematic to sync those using native filemaker features uh, mirror sync does it but it, it's it's fairly complex what it has to do behind the scenes to make it work the reason it's hard is because if, if you know, Michael, if you create record, if we both have the same copy of the file and you create records one through 10 and I have the same file and I create records one through 10, or then your record number four doesn't really have anything to do with my record number four. So when I go to import your records into my system, I don't know exactly what I would do there, but it's not going to be good. Uh, you know, I don't, obviously I don't want to have two records with ID number four. I clearly don't want to replace mine with record number four. The way MirrorSync does it is it would import yours 
into my system and re and allow them to get renumbered 11 through 20. But then mirror sync internally keeps a table of that so that if Michael, if you go and you change record number five, mirror sync will know, Oh, I need to actually make this change to record number 15. Yeah. That's an interesting, interesting point. I make a point of never using serial numbers for anything, for any connections or relationships. And I always use UUID, but uh, recently we were talking to, I think it was perhaps Mark and the subject, the UUID numbers came up, which is a FileMaker function, but it's not one that FileMaker uses in the, in the base elements for a table. And what's your thoughts and information on this subject? Yeah, so in MirrorSync 5 and earlier, we did not support UUID numbers. And the reason is because we assumed that, <laughs> that numbers were no longer than 17 digits because that's the way it is in every other database. And, and we sync with MySQL and Oracle and SQL Server and all these things. So, you know, we're kind of limited by what those other systems do. So by limiting ourselves to 17 digits, we clearly could not work with UUID numbers. Starting in MirrorSync 6, we now support that, partly because it's, you know, MirrorSync, the other thing is that MirrorSync was originally written to work in FileMaker 10, and it's continued to be supported in FileMaker 10 up through MirrorSync 5. In MirrorSync 6, we said, it's clean slate, we're gonna require 17 or later. So we added a lot of new things that utilize new stuff in FileMaker like UUID numbers. And uh, I've heard FileMaker engineers say that UUID numbers are a little bit more efficient. I don't know if they're dramatically more efficient, but I think internally they take less data to store in FileMaker. And so that makes the indexing a little bit faster. Essentially a UUID number is, is a, I believe it's 52 digit, it's a 52 digit long number as opposed to a 36 character UUID, that's, you know, letters zero through nine and A through F. And from, from MirrorSync standpoint, we basically treat a UUID number as just a long piece of text. So we don't have, we don't internally get any efficiency out of a UUID number, but FileMaker probably gets at least a marginal improvement with efficiency if you're using a UUID number as opposed to a UUID. Well, if that's true, you'd think that they would make that the option that they use to with their primary key field? Uh, I think, yeah, that's, I think that's a valid point. I think one thing about UUIDs is that there aren't many, as I mentioned, there are not many FileMaker, non-FileMaker systems that support 52 character digits. They're basically going to treat it as text. So if you're wanting to interoperate between FileMaker and any other system, just about every database out there now supports UUIDs. Often many of them have native support for generating UUIDs. So I think the UUID is a better choice for interoperability outside of the FileMaker ecosystem. But I think the UUID number might be better if you're building an entirely FileMaker-based system that doesn't need to talk to anything else. Yeah, that's a great distinction, Jesse. Thank you. Now, you mentioned that it sounds like MirrorSync does field-level synchronization. And I want to compare that to probably what you only are going to get out of doing synchronization with FileMaker features is record level synchronization. Can you tell us what the difference between the two are and, and what you know, can expect with each one of those approaches, record versus field level? Yeah, so we, we do, MirrorSync also does record level synchronization in the sense that if you change a record, we pull all the fields from that record and we write all of the fields from that record to the destination. But where it does get 
at down to a field level is when there's a conflict. So, you know, if you change the phone number of a record and I change the email address of that same record and we go and try and sync to the server, NeuroSync will see that, oh, somebody else modified this record. I was going to write all of the fields, but let me take a look and see what the fields are in the server and compare that. Not, not just compare that. How do I say this? We can't just simply compare what's on the server to what I have because yeah, your email address doesn't match my email and your phone doesn't match my phone. But just doing a two-way merge is not enough to know who changed what. So MirrorSync keeps an audit log that allows it to view a, do a three-way sync. So rather than just compare what's on the server to my version, I'm comparing what's on the server to what was the last contents of the record when we were both in sync with each other. And so I didn't, that wasn't the right word. I didn't explain that very well. But basically, MirrorSync has a snapshot of what the record looked like when it was the same on both. And then it can compare that, the server to that last snapshot and my copy to the last snapshot. And that's when MirrorSync can say, ah, I see that the phone number was changed on the server, but the email address was changed on your copy. So I'm going to create a new record that merges these changes together. And then I'll write that full record to the, to the server. So we are always writing a full record at a time, but when we get into conflicts, that's when we get down to the field level to figure out which things to, to merge which other with, with other, other things. We don't do that on every change because it is time consuming. It adds a lot of time to the sync and we try to make mirror sync extremely fast. So we don't routinely compare at a field level. We only do it when we see that it's been changed on both by based on the modification timestamp. Now, when you're changing the data, you're in the case you just illustrated where you had two different fields, one was changed on one level, one location, and the other was changed on the other. Are you taking the most recent change in that scenario? So if there's no conflict, then the question of most recent is irrelevant. But if there is a conflict, then there are, MirrorSync has several built-in options. So the first thing it will try to do is merge the changes. And if it can merge the changes, if it can see that, oh, I see that phone number was changed here, email was changed there, then it doesn't need to treat that as a conflict. It can say, this isn't really a conflict. I can just put the changes together and then we're fine and there's no problem. But what if we both change the email address? Now you have a conflict and MirrorSync doesn't know enough to know whether your email address that you put is the correct one or whether mine is the correct one. So then you get into, into a, a legitimate conflict scenario. And so MirrorSync has several strategies for dealing with that. One is that the most recent modification wins, which is, is an important distinction. It's not the most recent sync wins, which I think the other frameworks that I've looked at for doing sync will typically take a most recent sync wins, but that's not, you know, it, 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 if, if somebody else changes the record last week and now I change it right now, and then I sync, and then five minutes later, this other person who changed it a week ago syncs in the last sync wins scenario, theirs would take precedence because they synced after me. But in a last modification wins scenario, mirror sync would see, oh, they're syncing after Jesse, but their change is older than Jesse's. And so in the last modification win scenario, Jesse's would take priority because it was modified more recently. The other thing that can be done is a user picks, what we call user picks. And that is where we say to the user, I couldn't write this record because there was a conflict. And then we pop up a web-based color-coded thing, which it's, 
this is one thing that's hard to see in a podcast. It's, it actually looks really cool when you see it visually because it shows all the fields left and right, and it highlights them to show you exactly which fields changed. And they just have arrows that you can say, I want the left version or the right version. And you can pick it on a per field basis so that you can kind of match all those up together. And then you run the sync again and mirror sync will apply all those changes based on what you pick. Um, a lot of people, a lot of developers I find really don't trust their users to get that right, which I think is overly skeptical. I think users can handle that kind of thing, but you know, that's not my call. <laughs> the point is that we have a third option which is administrator picks, which is basically the same thing as user picks, except instead of the, the person doing the sync, making that choice, an email gets sent to an administrator and the administrator clicks that link. They get a web view pop up and then they can pick the exact same things. And when that user runs their next sync, it will apply whatever changes the administrator selected. So those are our, those are our conflict resolution strategies. And um, it feels like uh, that works pretty well. I have never. I don't think we've had a, a feature request in quite a long time for anything beyond the scope of those conflict resolution strategies. So you've clearly put a tremendous amount of thought into this product and making sure it works correctly, and you know how it decides which change is going to take precedence. But I also need to mention, since we don't want to play favorites here, that there are other products out there in the market such as GoZinc from Geist Interactive and Seed Code, Sync Server Pro from Linear Blue, Rest FM from Goya, and I even found a little product called Simple Starter Sync from Neocode. Um, those are things that you consider and you should look at each product and decide which one's the best for you. Uh, so we don't want to necessarily say that, that MirrorSync, although Jesse is very knowledgeable, you can see what he's talking about, but we want to make sure you know what the rest of the products are out there. Yes, absolutely. In your mind, Jesse, what is the big advantage of MirrorSync over other competing products? And I know we've just, you've just mentioned several of them. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to single any, anything out, but I would just say in a broad sense, I find that MirrorSync is far easier to set up and configure than any other sync system that I've seen. Um, and I would 100% agree with you. I looked at one of the competitors, and I'm not going to mention them either, and the, the, the setup was like, I've got a headache before I even start. Yeah. So we, we got the setup down so quick that what we started doing was at DevCon, we started doing a MirrorSync setup station so that people could actually just bring their solutions to us in their 15 minute break between sessions um, or, or a full hour during a session, either one. And we would have one of our, one of our mirror sync tech support people just do the setup for them for free at DevCon during a session or during a break. And, uh, and this is without knowing anything about their solutions. So, you know, I mean, that, that was, that was really cool for me. That made, that really validated for me. Uh, that we've ma managed to make the setup process so kind of universal and so quick and so simple. And how was that received from the user's standpoint, people at the show? Was it wow? We, we, got a, we got a fair bit of uptake on that. Although really what really wound up happening is we had a whole bunch of people that were already using MirrorSync just want to come and ask us a bunch of questions. Uh, so, so it turned more into a Q&A session, but we did definitely have a, a fair number of people that that wanted to, to do that. I think people didn't actually believe that we could set it up for them on their server. So a lot of people would like bring a copy of their solution on like on a USB drive, just to actually see us do it. 
I, I mean, the way we were pitching it is, is to say, hey, RDP into your server and we'll just set it up for you. And when you get home, you're done and you're ready to go. I think we did a, like a handful of those, but, but most for the most part, I think people were just skeptical that it would even work. And they just wanted to bring a copy of their solution to see it done and then maybe go, go back home and do it themselves. So Jesse, what happens if in the middle of your synchronization, you lose internet connectivity? What, what is, what does MirrorSync do? Yeah. And that does happen often. Um, and so MirrorSync, you know, John Sindelar and I were talking about this many years ago and John Sindelar came up with the word that I liked, the phrase that I like, which is eventually consistent as opposed to transaction. So in a, in a transactional model, if the sync fails partway through, then you would revert everything that had been done. And then on your next sync, you would, you would redo all those things. And the mirror, mirror sync takes, I, I like the phrase he came up with, mirror sync takes the eventually uh, consistent approach, which is to say, if we're syncing 10 different tables and we get 70% of the way through table number six, when it dies, we'll remember that. And so your, your tables at the conclusion of the sync, you may not have all the data, but if you get your internet back and then you run the sync again, we'll remember where we were and we'll resume from there and pick up. And so if you are dealing with large data sets, which we often are, then I find that it's, I find that to be the preferable option because it can take a while to sync. You know, sometimes we have users that are syncing thousand records that all have 40 photos that they've taken. And, you know, they, they might have to sync overnight to get something that like that finished because it's just the amount of data. And so it would suck to wake up in the morning and find out that your iPad went to sleep 10 minutes before it finished. And then you need to do the whole thing again. But there are other examples, like if you are doing finances where it would be unthinkable to have partly finished records sent from one system to the other. So in those systems, uh, you need to either make sure that there is some warning that pops up to the user in case the sync doesn't complete and they can do it again, or maybe mirror sync is not the, the right solution in that, in that environment. Does MirrorSync keep a, an audit log of what was changed where, Jesse, if anybody ever wants to go back and look? Yeah, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not part of our user interface in the admin, but there is a text file log that gets kept. And so, yeah, in the logs directory of MirrorSync, there is a list of every change that we make to every record on every device. So it would always be possible to reconstruct the sequence of what happened in case something goes wrong. I don't know that any, nobody has ever actually called us and asked us for that. Primarily when it's come up is during tech support. If somebody says, I don't know who changed this record. I don't know why it changed. I think MirrorSync did something wrong. Then sometimes we might refer back to that auto log from a troubleshooting standpoint, and we would show them, Hey, this user changed it on this date. You should go talk to that user and find out, you know, why they changed it or what they did. But uh, even though we keep the audit log, I think it's very rare that it actually gets used, but it's, it's nice knowing that it's there. So if a record were duplicated or deleted or something like that, whether it was because of a bug in mirror sync or because of some user action, it's nice knowing that you can go back and see exactly what happened. I wanted to go back and on and mention, uh, you had asked the question about, you know, what are some of the things that make mirror sync better? And I had mentioned the easy setup and, and there are a lot of things, but I, I, I do want to, there's a second point, which is really important, which is just the speed. Mirror sync is really fast. And one of the reasons it's so fast is because it does not open a connection to FileMaker server doesn't open a connection as a guest to FileMaker server. There is no point during MirrorSync. And now with MirrorSync 6, we've even removed, there were certain edge cases in 5 and earlier where we would, but in MirrorSync 6, there are no cases where FileMaker Pro or Go 
ever connects as a guest to FileMaker server to do anything. Everything is always sent via insert from URL to the MirrorSync web application. And so there's that's incredibly efficient. There's no latency or all of the kind of setup of establishing that connection, loading the scheme, loading the layouts, the table catalogs, all that kind of stuff when you establish a connection to FileMaker. So when we're running no change syncs, they often finish in less than a second. You know, a, a no change sync will often take 87 milliseconds, 200 milliseconds, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So by focusing on the optimization of a no change sync, we make it so it's very, users don't have to worry about clicking the sync button. You know, they don't have to say, oh, I don't want to sync right now. They can just sync as often as they want because they know that if nothing changed in the server, it's not going to like lock them up for 30 seconds while it opens a connection as a guest to FileMaker server. Do you recommend uh, using an on-script timer to do a sync or do you think you users should just manually press the button to sync? Yeah, I, I you can certainly do an on-script timer. MirrorSync is just a FileMaker script. Uh, at least on the client side, you know, there's a lot of on the on the server side, it's a web application, but on the client side, it is truly just a FileMaker script. So you can trigger it any way you could trigger any FileMaker script, including an on timer. The reason I don't recommend it is because it it is a little it pops open, it commits whatever record you're on, and it pops open a window that's open for the duration of the sync. So even if the sync is very fast, even if it runs in half a second, it would be annoying to me if I'm doing data entry that every five minutes, my record commits and it pops open a window and then that window closes. Even if it leaves me where I was, I would find that not, not great. So I find that a better approach would be to call the mirror sync script in response to user actions. So if user is doing an inspection and then they click a button to send the PDF of that inspection to their customer, that would be where I would stick the MirrorSync script. So I would send the PDF and then I would also run the MirrorSync script to push all those changes up to the server. Another thing to consider is that MirrorSync supports multiple configurations for a single file, which means that you could have like one sync that runs that maybe just does a one-way push of three tables to the server so that it's really, really fast. And then at the end of the day, you could have another sync that does a bi-directional sync of 50 tables. So it like updates everything, you know, all your reference tables and all that kind of stuff. So I find that by by kind of carefully strategizing and syncing just a small amount of data, you can almost add the sync to a, to the to a existing workflow in a way that the user hardly notices that it's happening. So you could just based on that, Jesse, you could use MirrorSync to push a subset of data, say the the current data having been collected from multiple users to an individual user's iPad. So they've got the most current data when they go out and start their work for the day. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And so by default, MirrorSync synchronizes everything, all the records, all the tables, all the fields. Well, not all the tables, but all the records and all the fields and the, and the tables that you select. And that's a very, very, very easy setup to do. But we generally recommend for efficiency, depending on the size of your database and the number of users, it will almost always be faster to filter it so that each user only gets their deliveries or their inspections or their jobs or their orders or whatever it is, the things that they're doing. And uh, it's very, very easy to customize that. It just uses regular FileMaker scripting. So we have a customization script in, you know, if you have a, a jobs table, you just write like five lines of regular old FileMaker scripting so that if we're on the jobs table, enter find mode, find all the jobs where the status is active, where the assigned user is equal to whatever the user's account name is, 
and then constrain the found set. And now you're only going, that user will only get their active jobs. And MirrorSync will also automatically take care of cleaning up the iPad. So if that status gets changed to complete on the server, then maybe the user changes it to complete and they run their sync on the following sync that no longer matches that criteria because the it's customized to only find active jobs. So it'll remove that job from their iPad because it no longer is active and no longer match, matches their, their filter criteria. So we always recommend filtering based on the user for large databases with a large number of users because it, it gets exponentially uh, you know, more efficient that way. So how does MirrorSync know which data to synchronize with which mobile application? There's two ways to take that question. Are you asking, so there's the customization script that controls which users get it. And that's generally based on a user login. Typically, you know, so if you distribute 10 iPads to 10 different people in the field, the way I would usually recommend that those 10 people have 10 distinct usernames and passwords. And the, their username is available to you at the time that you're customizing, you're filtering the records. So typically you'll use their username as some portion of your search to make sure that the people get the right records on the right devices. It doesn't have to be based on the username. So for instance, if, if you just make it so that maybe each device has a device number that is put on the FileMaker device, put on the FileMaker database at the time you set it up, you could pass in that device number and use that device number as part of your script. You can, the script can get whatever parameters you, the developer, choose to send it. And then on the server side, you, the developer, are in charge of writing whatever script you want to customize that find. So again, I would say the username is the most common thing, but it's certainly not the only only way to do to do that. And what I, the second way to, to interpret that question, maybe maybe what you were asking me is, how does it know if the records are modified separately from which users get which records? And that's based on the modification timestamp. But then we do a bunch of time zone detection. Uh, a lot of our users are in different time zones from the server. And so it's important that we don't just simply blindly accept their their clock time as the correct time. One of the first things that happens during the sync is MirrorSync will send up to the server, here's what time I think it is. And then the server will say, oh, here's what time I think it is. So now I know exactly how much adjustments to make on all of my modification timestamps, figuring out what time zone you're in and whether your clock is right or wrong. Could you not, uh, and I understand that completely, but could you not use a constant like GMT? We could, and that would actually make it a lot easier for me. <laughs> the reason that I haven't done that is because there are only three fields that are required for MirrorSync, a primary key, a modification timestamp, and a creation timestamp. And those three fields are included by default with FileMaker 17 and later. And really they're in almost by de facto in every FileMaker solution that everyone's ever built. So if we were to introduce a new field that we wanted with the, like the get UTC time milliseconds, which would be easier for me, that would require users to add a new field to all other tables. So we, we really prioritize ease of setup over simplicity of my development. So by, by doing it this way, you know, I mean, it's most of the time there are no fields that need to be added to a solution. And as far as the names go, we'll detect those fields, no matter what their name. So as long as you have those fields in your solution, a creation timestamp, a modification timestamp and a primary key, we can usually auto detect them and pick them up and we don't want to make any requirements. So you have to add additional fields. Okay, perfect. So let's uh, move away from synchronicity 
Can I talk about, I want to, I want to, I want to jump in one last thing I want to bring up, which is that mirror sync one through five were all targeted towards this notion of client syncing with the server. You know, you've got your iPads, you've got your, uh, your iPhones and you're doing field data inspection or whatever like that. Mirror sync six does that and it does it very well. And it's continues to improve on that process. But what is really, really exciting to me. And I think I'm really hoping will be a, a seismic shift in the FileMaker community, especially for serious, you know, business use of FileMaker, is this notion of server-to-server -server syncs, uh, and that's really what we're. There are a lot of features in FileMaker uh, and MirrorSync six that make it much easier to do server-to-server -server synchronization now, and so I feel like FileMaker has never had a good option for clustering and replication and geographic distribution and load balancing and failovers and all those kinds of things. And uh, we just kind of live with it, you know? And so when there's downtime, we tell our users it's down, we try to make it so that we can get our backups as quickly as possible. FileMaker made, in my opinion, a half-hearted attempt to do something with their progressive backups, which they then ditched. And so there is not really a good solution for people that have mission critical systems or for, for people that have users in widely distributed geographies. And so MirrorSync 6, I, I'm really hoping, will we'll get traction in that area. And I think that enterprise customers should take a hard look at MirrorSync and see whether it would be a good solution for them to, to reduce that downtime. Uh, I've done some demos at DevCon that are really cool, uh, showing using uh, a, a load balancer in front of two FileMaker servers that stay in sync with each other using MirrorSync. And I've demonstrated forcefully shutting one server down and all the people that were doing the demo with me automatically got rerouted to the second server. And when I bring the first server back up, MirrorSync sees that it's back up, syncs all the changes from the second server back to the first server, and then the load balancer starts shuffling all those users so that they're evenly distributed again between the first and second server. And if you haven't seen that before, it's an alien concept in FileMaker. You know, it's just, it's hard to wrap your head around it if you haven't seen that before. But when you see it, you're like, oh my God, this is how everything should work. Did you ever produce a video about that? I, I talked about it with Richard Carlton uh, at a, a very noisy DEF CON session, uh, but I have not really done a, 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 a really well done video demonstrating that, and I, I really ought to. While we're talking about this, and as you were talking, it just occurred to me that, as you know, we can connect to external uh, data sources from FileMaker, and we can open up a connection to a SQL or a MySQL table and use a, a drive, one of the drivers to connect to it. But using MirrorSync, it would seem that you could do this without, you could do all of that with MirrorSync and without that ESS connection and the drivers. Absolutely, yeah. One of the first things we did with our MySQL online stores that we had been using ESS to be able to pull reports in FileMaker and FileMaker with MirrorSync. You can also add your own additional fields to local tables with ESS. You kind of get whatever's on the server and the only kinds of fields you can add are unstored calcs and summary fields. There, there's a lot of benefits. We have a, uh, I actually, if you go to docs.360works.com and you look at the advanced documentation for MirrorSync, we have a, an article titled, Why Use MirrorSync Instead of ESS? And we have about a dozen bullet points showing you why it's better. And it's not better in every case. Like I mentioned, if you have something that speed is not important and uh, and it's just kind of administrative backend, then synchronization is probably overkill. But we, but yeah, if it's a bigger, more complex thing and speed is important, then syncing is often a much better solution than ESS.
Can Verisync connect to, or has this never been done, to QuickBooks uh, desktop files and push data and pull data out of them via that? No, it can't. I, I don't know if there's... So Verisync supports any JDBC-compatible database, which I don't believe QuickBooks is JDBC-compatible, as far as I know. And it also supports specific APIs that we've written for. So we've written API integrations for Salesforce, for Amazon Redshift, for DynamoDB, and that might be, I, I'm probably missing one, but I think those are the ones we've written specific APIs for. So QuickBooks is not in that list. We felt like the QuickBooks market is fairly well served at the moment. You know, I mean, Productive has their product, which works really well. I know Todd Geist had come up with a product to work with the, I think the online version of QuickBooks that seems to work pretty well. So it's, if somebody came to us with a really important reason of why they needed MirrorSync to do something that wasn't available in some existing product, we would really look hard at it. But, uh, you know, we, we try not to just replicate or duplicate stuff that other people already have. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, anything more on synchronicity before I get you off that subject and we start talking about plugins? <laughs> no, this is great. Thank you guys very much. These are great questions. Well, great. So Claris recently launched FileMaker Cloud 2.0, which doesn't support plugins notably. And I was wondering how this affects 360 Works and your plugins. Is there any way around it for those people who use plugins but want to sign up for Cloud 2.0? At the moment today, no, but we have some really neat stuff that we're working on. I don't know if I should talk about it right now or not. We haven't publicly ever said it, and I don't know for sure if we're going to do it or not, but we, I'd, I will say we have a working proof of concept where I, I feel like Rick Kalman, you know, these features I'm about to tell you may or may not be in some future version of FileMaker that nobody will ever be able to guess the name of it. But uh yeah, so we, we've got a, a version of our plastic plugin, which is uh, for credit card processing, working where it all works with script calls so that instead of calling plugin functions, you copy and paste a script. And the script actually calls Lambda functions, which execute on AWS. And the Lambda functions in turn use DynamoDB on the back end, which is another AWS service to store their kind of internal state, since Lambda is a fundamentally stateless service. And, uh, and it's working. And the performance is actually better than I expected. And so we really need to make a decision about whether or not we want to really finish this and do all the documentation and the licensing and the support and, you know, come up with an easy way to deploy it and, you know, how the AWS costs would be allocated. You know, there's, there's a lot of kind of business problems that haven't been solved yet from, from a technical standpoint, we have a working proof of concept that, that where we can essentially just have cloud-based versions of all of our plugins. And that would be attractive, not only for FileMaker Cloud 2.0, but it would also be attractive for FileMaker Go, which also can't easily run plugins. Possible to run plugins with FileMaker Go if you use the iOS SDK bundler. Uh, I don't think a lot of people are using that option because it's fairly difficult to deploy those solutions. And so this, this would allow us to Kind of satisfy two markets at once the filemaker cloud market and the filemaker go market we just need to really have an internal business discussion over whether the cost and benefits are in line with each other it would certainly seem that plastic would be a very good test case scenario because that's a very big demand for a lot of people yeah 
yeah, I think a lot of people want to be able to to input credit card information on mobile device and then run that charge all natively in FileMaker. And so that's that's why we picked it. I, I, I agree with you. And what is puzzling to me is that the version of cloud, the first version of FileMaker Cloud, which is now FileMaker Cloud for AWS, did, if I'm correct, support plugins and it, it's Linux. So you would think that version 2.0, which is also Linux, should be able to support plugins as well. I we did uh, port our plugins to Linux, which is kind of, uh, in some ways, a cautionary tale of why we are not quite jumping on this new plan yet, because we did a lot of work on that. We had very little uptake on it, and it was quite a bit of, of work to port it to Linux. And there was really just, if I had that to do over again, I would absolutely not have done that, especially if I could know that in a few years, FileMaker Cloud on Linux 1.0 would be discontinued and the plugins would no longer run. As to why they are not doing it in Cloud 2, I think that answer comes down very simply, which is that they are now responsible for the hosting. And I presume that they'll probably have multiple clients. I don't know if they'll be sharing the same virtual machine or if it's going to be like an Amazon container somehow. But I think that, you know, as long as the customers were kind of responsible for their own boxes and their own hosting fees and things like that. FileMaker didn't really care whether they wanted to install third-party software into those boxes. But I think FileMaker is going to now take on a lot more of that responsibility and with it the liability of hosting those. And so there's probably security risks as well as technical issues of, of supporting third-party products, which I don't blame them for. I would probably feel the same way if I wanted to come up with kind of a shrink-wrapped hosting platform that I was hoping to have it be as maintenance-free as possible. So I, I understand that business decision, and I, I'm hoping that they will be as supportive as possible of third parties being able to still integrate with FileMaker Cloud without necessarily having to install a plugin on the actual box. And is there a big difference in performance or any reason why that would be a negative? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes. You could definitely, you know, just do all of the processing on the client side. I feel like strategically speaking, I feel like things are shifting more and more to the server side. Like for instance, WebDirect, you know, if we want our plugins to work with WebDirect, then doing it on the client is not going to be a solution. And in addition, using the data API, it feels like the right way to use the data API is generally speaking, in my opinion, not so much to actually use the data API the way the FileMaker created it, where you call insert, edit, update, delete, but rather to call scripts that run on the server and the scripts do the operations because there's just a lot of limitations I find of using the data API directly. And if the scripts need to, to run credit cards or send emails or uh, you know do FTP upload and download kind of operations, things like that, then you know we would need to have the ability to run those on the, on the server. But you're absolutely right that just because your solution is hosted on FileMaker Cloud does not mean you can't use plugins. It just means you can't use plugins on the server. Some, yeah, some operations are going to be faster on the client. Some are going to be on the server. If you are, obviously, if you're doing like a perform script on server, and the reason you're doing that is to make something faster, then obviously that plugin needs to be available on the server. And uh, I, I guess it really comes down to the same arguments as perform script on server. There are some operations like if you want to set one field in one record, clearly it's faster to do that in the client than to call perform script on server. 
But if you want to do a replace operation over a million records, then clearly it's much faster to do perform script on server and ideally even maybe do it in the background without waiting for the result. And the same logic would apply to plugins. Uh, you know, if you've got large batch operations, uh, you're going to be better off with those plugins running on the server side. And if you have individual, you know, transactional kind of operations, those are probably more efficient to run on the client. Now, Jesse, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you could have, if it's possible for the plugin to work this way, have a client-side plugin working under FileMaker Advanced on Macintosh or Windows and get around the issue with Cloud 2.0 not supporting server-side plugins. Is that correct? Absolutely. There are some situations where, yeah, the client is just not an option. Uh, and and we, we ran into this, you know, there's a funny thing. So... So first of all, let me mention uh, MirrorSync, in case I hadn't said it before, is not a plugin. So, so none of this kind of discussion of cloud plugins and stuff like that really is relevant to MirrorSync. It's more relevant to like our email plugin and Scribe and FTP and Plastic and those, those things. But we had kind of a funny situation when FileMaker Cloud first came out. At that point in time, it had kind of a very primitive version of the data API, but that version did not support scripts. And... In the MirrorSync setup process, we have to run scripts to get certain things that just aren't available any other way other than by calling a script. And so we really wanted MirrorSync to be able to, to run on FileMaker Cloud. So what we wound up doing, uh, John, to your point, is we, we wound up having them, the, the user would have to have a copy of FileMaker Pro open while they did the configuration. And then when we got to each point that required a script to normally be run in the server, we would say, go to FileMaker Pro and click the button that says run script for server. <laughs> and so, you know, it would just get the records and, and do what it needed to do on the client and then save that back into a field in the server, which we would then pull from MirrorSync. So, you know, there are all sorts of kind of hacks that can be done, but I was very, very happy when the data API added the ability to call scripts directly. That took away that whole hacking nightmare. Jesse, before we get off the subject of plugins, do you think this limitation is regarding cloud 2.0 not allow, working with them is a temporary limitation that will be addressed in due course or do you see it as perhaps claris trying to get away from the use of plugins and do that same functionality using claris connect i if i had to guess i would guess that they are not coming back i think that as long as filemaker or claris rather is taking responsibility and has either explicit or implicit liability for what happens on the server, I think they will probably not allow any third-party software to run on that box. That's, that's my guess. Do you see Claris Connect as being a factor in this? I'm still pretty, I'm still pretty in the dark about Claris Connect. I went to DevCon, and so I kind of got some idea of what it was about then, but uh, I am not really, I've not, uh, I'm not on the ETS, and so I have not had a chance to really play with it that much and see what it does or how it works. But it does definitely seem like that's the direction they'd like us to go, is, is uh, using Claris Connect whenever we need to do something that can't be done natively within FileMaker. Okay, it'll be interesting to see what actually happens with this. It's uh, interesting times. Do you see Cloud 2.0 negatively affecting your hosting business? Because I know you do provide hosting services. We do provide hosting services. and. I think that at the current price point, it's hard for me to imagine it being that competitive with anything. You know, I mean, I, I would like FileMaker and Claris to do well, so I'm not trying to like tear, to, tear anything down, but uh, it's, 
it, it is it seems to me to be quite expensive well i think it is and i think it's it seems to me that they're trying to get very small businesses and by that i mean five users or less to sign up for claris um, cloud 2.0 because it's a one-stop shop and i don't think they expect many larger than five users to take advantage of it because it just becomes astronomically expensive the more users you have yeah and i guess that really at since they are charging per user if you have a very small number of users like one or two or three then the monthly pricing actually probably is competitive or or, or uh you know maybe even better than the prices that you would pay for a dedicated server. So from that standpoint, that, that seems to be where it would make sense. But yeah, when you get to, to 10 users, 20 users, 50 users, uh, you know, one of our clients is 300 users, you know, then, then clearly the math tilts away from the per user pricing model that they have set up. Yeah, absolutely. So finally, and just to finish off, what are your thoughts on the new direction that Claris is taking? I know I'm really excited about it, but what do you think? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's clear that Brad is has, has a very different vision than Dominic. And uh, I think it's it's scary and it's exciting. Uh, you know, I think that when, when Dominic was the CEO, I felt like we had a pretty good idea of what was coming or what was not coming. And it felt stable and it felt kind of reassuring in a way. But I think that with Brad, I think that he, you know, clearly like immediately upon taking that position, he's made some major strategic decisions and uh, those could all go terribly wrong and things could just kind of completely fall apart or it could be tremendously successful and FileMaker would get to the levels that we always all kind of as a community wish that it would be, you know, I mean, we always, I know everyone in the file, everyone I know in the FileMaker community is always like griping that why isn't FileMaker as big as Salesforce is so good. Why isn't FileMaker, you know, why is it a second class citizen in the IT realm? And I think that Brad has that same question. And I think that his answer is that it is just as good as those and it should be treated like those. And, and so I think it's a, I, it's a bit of a gamble, but it could pay off big or, or it could be really bad. I think that if if this bet with Claris Connect, and there's more to come, they clearly want to produce more products, but if this bet works, I think it's going to make it a no-brainer for IT departments to have to adopt FileMaker because it does something so much better. And I think that's kind of, think back when the iPhone came out. You know, it was so much better than every other smartphone. I mean, everything else is, you know, the got the similar capabilities now but if if filemaker pulls us off and they and they get the approval of it because people are you know saying you've got we've got to have this look at how good this is we can you know maybe this will be the thing that takes them over the top yeah well it's always been you know it always feels like since as long as i can remember it feels like we the consultants have always been pitted against the customer's it department and the customer is stuck in the middle right and, they, and so the it department is going no, 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 we don't want to install this. We don't know what it is. Who knows what it could do? Uh, we don't understand it. We can't support it. We can't maintain it. The developers are, you know, us are sitting here going, FileMaker is awesome. It's so fast. It's so, you know, cost effective, tremendous value. You know, it can solve all your problems so much better than the way you're, uh, you're trying to solve it. And the customer is like stuck. And it feels like this push to say, we're not going to have to have it on premises anymore. And there is a fully 
supported first party delivery of, of a, uh, you know, the, the infrastructure to take care of it. And you're not having to work really with Amazon uh, directly, and you're not having to work with a third party hosting provider. And you get kind of the safety and the comfort and security of knowing that FileMaker is providing the software as well as the infrastructure that might really make a big difference to, especially to larger companies. Unfortunately, those same larger companies that it would be most attractive to are also the ones that I think would be least interested in the, in the pricing model as it exists right now. Well, yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, there is always the scenario, Jesse, that you know somebody could use regular hosting with all the you know security features of FileMaker, have a server instance with you or with one of the other providers, and then use MirrorSync or any of the syncing products to sync data to their main system, whatever whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a fantastic idea. You know, I noticed something, it was like this little bullet point at near the bottom of the slide. And I think there was like three words said about it. And it was the most exciting part of the presentation for me, which is, did you guys notice this when they did their roadmap, they mentioned bundle Linux VM for your own, like on-premises hardware. Did you guys see that? I didn't No. What does it mean? Uh, it means, I think, if, if I'm just going by a bullet point, but my interpretation of it is a return to the 5.5 days when FileMaker actually had a Linux offering that you could download and install on your own Linux box. And that would be, I think, really exciting for hosting providers because I think most hosting providers, including us, would far prefer to support a Linux box than a Windows box. And the idea of being able to install like our own AMI or something along those lines where we would be able to manage it and maintain it and SSH into it and administer it and not have it be, you know, FileMaker Cloud 2 obviously is a FileMaker only product. And even FileMaker Cloud 1, it was technically running on your hardware or at least your Amazon managed hardware. But it wasn't really yours. You know, FileMaker made it really clear. This is a black box. You shouldn't touch it. You shouldn't do anything to it. We may freely just obliterate everything on this box at any time and replace it with a new instance. If they're giving us the ability to install our own, essentially, FileMaker server, just like Mac and Windows, except on Linux, I feel like we would be able to do so many things as far as like automating installation processes and automating backups and getting lower costs for hosting um, and maybe get all the benefits that FileMaker Cloud 2.0 has, but with all the control of, of you know, being able to host it on our own hardware that we can manage and maintain. So, Jesse, it, it was interesting that uh, during my, this is from the product roadmap, which is publicly available information. We're just kind of talking about what we saw, but there were many different sessions of it. And during mine, somebody asked a question at the end about this bullet point and wanted to know, if we were going to get FileMaker Server for Linux on-premise, not just in the cloud. And they kind of said yes, they kind of said no. They really said maybe, we can't say for sure. So, But I think that's what it was, just to confirm what you were thinking. That's That was what I got out of that question being asked during my product roadmap session. That's that's exciting to me, yeah. Well, not to mention the fact that, that it used to be on Linux, right? Exactly, that was 5.5, right? Right. Something like that. Yeah. Long time ago in FileMaker years. Yeah. 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 You know, there's, there's things that I like about FileMaker Cloud too, but there are things I don't like about it as well. And the thing that my single biggest problem with FileMaker Cloud 2.0, you know, maybe even more of a big deal than the pricing 
is the fact that you can't upload and download files to FileMaker server, to FileMaker cloud. Not, I'm sorry, I didn't phrase that right. You can't programmatically through some API upload and download files. And the operation of uploading and downloading files is entirely manual, which means that you can't automate any processes that require you to have a copy of the, the database. So for instance, if you want to use the data migration tool, you need to sit there and babysit it while it downloads. Then you need to run the data migration tool, and then you need to sit there and babysit it while it uploads. And then you need to, you know, make sure that it's hosted and spun up correctly and running. So, you know, for instance, we have a product 360 deploy that just automates all of that with one button, the FileMaker server on Mac and Windows, but it can't work with FileMaker Cloud because we can't upload and download. Same thing goes for MirrorSync. You know, I mentioned uh, we've got this new server to server capability. And one of the new things that MirrorSync 6 does is it automates the process of taking a copy of your main production hub database and automatically transferring it over to the spoke database. It does that on the initial sync. And it also does that when you change the version, you know, so it will replace the old version on spoke with the new version from the hub. But again, we run into a roadblock with FileMaker Cloud because we don't have that ability to either download the file from the hub or upload it to the spoke with FileMaker Cloud. And I know that's kind of a very specific feature and I don't want to like turn this into like a, you know, do my feature bug fix rant kind of thing. But I think that philosophically stepping back from that specific item, I think it's very important for FileMaker or Claris rather to realize that when they take away the ability for the customer to manage the hardware themselves as they have with FileMaker Cloud 1.0 and to a greater extent with FileMaker Cloud 2.0, when they take that ability away, they become responsible for providing everything that the customer needs. So you no longer have the ability for a third party such as ourselves to kind of fill those gaps. And it's very important for FileMaker to be even more responsive about either implementing all the same features that the third parties were previously providing or providing the necessary API hooks so that the third parties can continue to provide the services, maybe not on the same box as FileMaker Server. And uh, I, so far, I have not gotten that impression. I got the impression that FileMaker Cloud is a black box. It's an appliance. Take it or leave it. And I, I hope that they realize that there are a lot more customers than they think that are not going to have much uptake on that until those customers know that they have that ability to kind of customize it to their needs. Yeah, it's a good point. The The one thing that was the most exciting to me on the product roadmap is that FileMaker Go is going to work on Android, which I think is a huge step forward. That was a big one, wasn't it? Yep. Especially since Steve Jobs famously said, over my dead body. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if the live code guys are excited about that as you are. Well, I'm wondering whether they've actually licensed it because they've spent so much time developing this. And I wonder if FileMaker may just simply buy the technology off them. That's, you know, I mean, they did it with Stamplay, right? Right. Well, they also did it a long time ago with CDML too. That's right. That's right. I <laughs> I remember CDML. I remember LDML. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Flash from the past, uh, Lasso. <laughs> and yeah. Blue World. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We are old, aren't we? We are. Well, you you definitely aren't, Jesse. I certainly am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if Jesse and I add up to the same age as Michael. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>
Thank you guys for ganging up on me. I really appreciate it. So that might be a good way to end this uh, this whole interview, right? On a on a high point, right? <laughs> Jesse, it's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, and and I'm look, it's been great. It's really been a lot of fun. It, I, I well, good. Well, yeah, I, I really enjoyed getting to know both of you guys a lot better as well. So thank you very much. Yep, I enjoyed it as well, and and, and hope to have you back again. Great, sounds good. So I'm Michael Rashad, and I'm signing off for this week. And my name is John Mark Osborne. Please leave your comments, email them to us, go to our website, put them in there, however you want to do it, good, bad. We appreciate everything. Yep. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Fireside Filemaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Rashad. We'd love to hear what you think, so please email us at info at firesidefilemaker.com. That's info at firesidefilemaker.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.